Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So, but right now we are here for Steph Chaw for Follow Her Home. Uh, let me uh, read you a little bit about her bio. First of all, she's an overachiever, graduate of Stanford and Yale Law School, and now she's written a novel. She lives right here in Los Angeles, California. Please connect with her on Facebook, Twitter, and Goodreads. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Steph Cha. Thanks for coming. <laughs> um, this is my third event, and it's like all of my fifth time reading in front of people, so bear with me. Um, so I think most of you know roughly what my novel is about, but it's um, it's a neo noir, so it is a take on a very very old genre. Um, and specifically, it's an homage to this guy, Raymond Chandler, um, who wrote the Philip Marlowe novels. And um, I'm actually going to start by reading a paragraph from The Big Sleep, because it's the opening paragraph. This will be a nice warm-up for me. Okay. So this is the first paragraph of The Big Sleep. It was about 11 o'clock in the morning, mid-October, with the sun not shining and a look of hard, wet rain and the clearness of the foothills. I was wearing my powder blue suit with dark blue shirt, tie, and display handkerchief, black brogues, black wool socks with dark blue clocks on them. I was neat, clean, shaved, and sober, and I didn't care who knew it. I was everything the well-dressed private detective ought to be. I was calling on $4 million. That's our introduction to, to Philip Marlowe who is um, Chandler's detective for, I think, seven novels. Um, maybe seven and a half. I think the half was not finished by him, and it was also not very good. Um, and uh, I want to read that because my first paragraph is a direct rip on that paragraph. And the reason is because um, Chandler was a man writing about a male detective, 
and he starts by describing everything Marlowe is wearing from head to toe, and that has a very different effect when it's a woman writing about a female character. So um, it stands as, I mean, I, I kind of hope that it was a direct enough homage that people would get it. Um, if you don't get it, I, get, I guess it's a challenge to see it as something other than chiclet because it does sound, um, you know, it's a woman talking about her clothes. Okay. All right, so I'm going to start um, reading, and I'm just going to keep reading for maybe five minutes. So I hope you guys have drinks. You don't have drinks? <laughs> All right. It was about 10 o'clock on a Friday in mid-July, the Los Angeles night warm and dry, the only wind rising from the whoosh and zoom of traffic on Rossmore. I was wearing a slinky black dress, black patent leather platform pumps, silver cascade earrings, and a black lambskin clutch. I was perfumed, manicured, and impeccably coiffed. I was everything a half-employed 20-something should be on the sober end of a Friday night. I was calling on an open bar at Luke's new apartment, ready to spend a little time and respectability on a blurry and colorful evening. Luke's place was in the Marlowe Apartments in Hancock Park, a complex towering pretty as a castle just north of the Wilshire Country Club. It stood less than two miles south of Hollywood and Ivar, where its namesake found his vocation. But the Marlowe was a luxury apartment more likely to house the rich degenerates of Chandler's novels than his wisecracking private eye with the heart of noir gold. Luke's loft was on third floor. I entered the building from Rosewood through an iron gate propped open by yesterday's Wall Street Journal, then passed through a plush outdoor patio and a furnished lobby offering complimentary coffee. The Marlowe featured a fleur-de-lis floating in the valley of an M as its logo, and fleur-de-lis peppered every plausible surface of the place, from the spikes on the gate to the hallway walls and elevator doors. I rode up to the third floor and found Luke's apartment, tucked in a corner behind a black door with three squares staggered in white geometric outlines from top to bottom. A printout taped to the door commanded in bold black font, Come on in and lose the shoes. I turned the knob and laughter and hip-hop spilled out at the first crack in the doorway, the pulse of the subwoofer smacking my ribs with a little less force than cardiac arrest. A landfill of footwear clogged the entrance. Flip-flops, Birkenstocks, loafers brown and black, Nikes and Converse, floral printed espadrilles, round-toed ballet flats in 12 colors. I looked down at my glossy pin-thin heels and scoured the floor for a friend. A wadded yellow sock peered at me from an unlaced sneaker, and as I started to surrender, I saw the pair that made mine look like Sunday shoes. They were tall, pointy, and painted in glitter, with blood-red soles and scarce-worn insoles reading Christian Louboutin. She was about as hard to spot as a clown in a prison cafeteria, wearing just a shade less makeup, tarred and sequined in steel gray from bust to mid-thigh, earlobes hoisting oversized Eiffel Tower chandeliers. She clocked in at about five foot one on a tall day, and except for some heavily jeweled wrists, she would have been easy enough to smuggle and carry on luggage. Her left hand held the conic bowl of a martini glass in a loose circle between thumb and forefinger, and her right hand gripped the sleeve of Luke's button-down mid-bicep. Her long, dark eyes squinted as her wide, red mouth gaped with silver laughter. Loose curls dyed a toasted honey brown fell past her shoulders, ends trembling on a modest bosom. She crinkled a nose that could hide behind a penny. 
One crooked incisor poked just a couple millimeters ahead of her front teeth. This would be her moneymaker, the Cheshire detail, the bite mark in your memory. Okay, that's the first part that I'm going to read. Um, and I did want to read that because it does start with a woman talking about her clothes and then it, there's a, even a label in there. Actually, people really um, latched onto that Christian Louboutin. It doesn't come back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think um, both my editor and a blurber talked about the Christian Louboutin heels and I think it's just something that stands out. Um, and I think it's for perfectly reasonable reasons, but I thought that was interesting. Um, so, second part I'm going to read is um, when she actually finds a corpse. And um, it's 40 pages into the book, so I don't think anything gets spoiled because it's all there on the jacket copy, which I, don't, I wouldn't read, but... Um, so in between, what happens is um, Song, that's the main character, gets introduced to Lori Lim, who's this diminutive paralegal or legal recruiter who works at um, her friend Luke's dad's law firm, and he asks her to investigate whether or not they're having an affair. And um, so she starts to do this um, by driving Lori home because Lori's drunk. And then um, she gets knocked out, which is a very typical thing that happens in every Chandler novel. Actually takes some of the suspense out of it. He always gets knocked out. And then um, finds body, because that's the other thing that always has to happen. You don't really have crime fiction without at least one body. So here's the body. Um, I pulled into the garage and slammed the brakes on the slope to my spot as a jogger with a death wish bunny hopped across the ramp. A thud sounded from the trunk and I felt my stomach drop as if my intestines had been yanked out from underneath it like a magician's tablecloth. It could have been a bag of bowling balls, maybe a floor lamp. It was definitely not the shopping bag of dry cleaning that I had put into my empty trunk the morning before. I slid my car into its space, crooked and hasty like I was stealing home. I slipped the stick to neutral, yanked on the emergency brake, and stepped out of my seat without turning off the engine. I don't drive stick. I have no idea how to drive stick. Um, I let myself hesitate for just a few seconds, then reached in for the latch. I closed my eyes and pulled until it popped and the trunk was open. I gave the door enough force to rise, and I stood back as it rose with the measured theatrical pace of an elevator unsealing, revealing. Bile bloomed harsh and thorny at the back of my throat. I suppose I already knew what was in there. In the dark of a Los Angeles night, I had been clubbed down and left out cold. This was a new reality with new rules, and it was about time to toll the body count. Marlowe always managed to describe every detail of a room before coolly settling his writer's eye on the petrified body with bound ankles and a knife in its face, sprawled out in a pool of gore on the middle of the musty oriental carpet that looked, 40 years ago, like it had seen better days. My trunk offered little to work with, but I wouldn't have noticed the gardens of Griffith's eye jammed into that spare space for the fact of death staring at me from within. I grabbed my knees, turned my head to the right, and threw up. A spotted confection of brown, orange, and pink hit the pavement like spilled chunky soup. By the time it settled into a couple of motionless pools, I was vomiting again. 
I huffed deeply, one, two, one, two, then heaved until there was nothing left. I spit and lifted a hand from where it gripped my kneecap to wipe the slime from my mouth on the flat of my wrist. I forced myself to look at the body. It was a he, a strange he, thank heavens. His long string bean frame lay crumpled at the hips, knees collapsed and pointing to the back of my trunk. His candy bright red hair was well kept, even after what had to have been a bumpier night than mine, spiffy with gel and a perfectly executed interpretation of bedhead. He wore a close-fitting button-down shirt in white and lilac pinstripes, unbuttoned a button or two too low. The lean expanse of tan skin peeking out from underneath was unnaturally hairless. Brown Ferragamo loafers and thin, distressed blue jeans finished the outfit. His torso was contorted so that he lay on his back with his face looking up at me. It was an unlovable face. Unlovable. It was an unlovable face. With twisted eyebrows, meager chapped lips, and a nose so narrow it barely had a bulb. When it mattered, maybe hours, maybe days ago, he might have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 29, 31. It didn't matter anymore. His muddy brown eyes were open, fixed in panic and disbelief. There was no blood that I could see, no holes, but a crude ribbon of bruises and narrow scratches spread across his neck. Strangled, if I had to guess, the fingernail marks might have been his own. I lowered the back of my hand into the trunk space and touched it, just barely, to the dead man's cheek. I don't know what I expected to gain from this gesture, but it proved pointless. The temperature, neither notably hot nor cold, was unrevealing, and the skin felt like regular old cheek skin, only I knew it was dead and I couldn't untouch it. I scraped the back of my hand against the skirt of my dress, but I couldn't unfeel the touch I absorbed with my skin, even as the fact of sensation fled from my mind. I rubbed and rubbed, trying not to keep staring at the corpse. I stopped when it started to smart, and I shook out my hand, then popped the wrist. The sound was crisp and satisfying, and I popped the other and cracked every knuckle I knew I had. The garage echoed. I think that's it. So, that's what I'm going to read today. <laughs> And then, um, do you guys have questions? Because I'm actually much more comfortable with this part. Oh God, somebody have a question. Can you talk about Chandler, <laughs> about his relationship to Los Angeles and your relationship to Los Angeles? Yeah. Um, so, God, I, I first read, I read The Big Sleep um, when I was a freshman in college. And I really loved it because it's this, um, it's a really great novel. You guys should all read it. It's seminal and wonderful. And um, I think um, you really can't understand my novel completely without it. I think it works without it. But it's, it's a great novel. Um, so Chandler um, wrote, it, if you guys have seen any of these spoofy, hard-boiled detectives, um, Philip Marlowe is one of the originals. It's like him and Sam Spade. So if you've seen like um, Tracer Bullet, the Calvin and Hobbes alter ego, that's a classic Sam Spade type. Um, but most of these fall into Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe. It's like that seminal. Um, 
And so when I read him, I mean, it was pretty revelatory because his style is just really great. I mean, it's a style that's really easily and often spoofed, but whenever you read him, you take it seriously because it, he's just very good. Uh, but he writes about LA, and um, that's one thing that uh, someone asked me to define noir the other day. Um, it's actually a reporter at my high school's paper who didn't who pronounced it nor and it was really adorable because I had no idea what nor was when I was in high school um, but nor is very much about mood and tone and setting and Chandler does it perfectly I mean you get a great sense of what LA was in the 40s and 50s um, and it's just this gritty beautiful like geographically concrete landscape um, and so that's what was compelling to me as somebody who lives in LA his LA is almost unrecognizable I mean you can catch the spare you can catch the stray street name um, and say like oh I kind of know where that is like Hollywood and Ivar that's like where amoeba is now um, so you you know like those streets exist, but um, I think when Chandler was writing, the tallest building in LA was maybe City Hall. Um, so it, it is it is a very different backdrop, but I like the sense of of place that he provided. So I think that's why a lot of people who write neo noir really respond to Chandler and really create like a sense of geography. And I wanted to do that with this novel. Um, which is, you know, it was a fun project in that sense. <laughs> oh, my relationship to Los Angeles. Uh, I grew up here. I was born in Van Nuys, California, um, which I think until very recently was the porn capital of the world. And that's actually how I told people about where I was born. I think now it's in Silicon Valley. Um, so I was born in Van Nuys. I grew up in the valley. Um, I went to high school in the Valley. Actually, my high school English teacher is here. Thank you for coming. <laughs> um, and I haven't really left this place longer than a few months at a time. Um, I went to school up north, and uh, I would come home very often. I'm very attached to my family. Um, both of my parents are here. Actually, my brother's here, too. Um, so, you know, I, I would fly southwest from San Jose to Burbank like every month. I actually, my br little brother was um, five years old when I went to school and he actually complained that I came home too often. Uh, <laughs> it's like such a jerk. Uh, <laughs> um, so that was, so I haven't really, you know, even when I was at the East Coast, I came home in October, November, December, and then I stayed to January and I came back in March. I mean, it was, um, you know, I really like this city. Um, it means a lot to me. I've, um, I can't imagine living anywhere else more than a few months. Um, so, I mean, I think whenever, whatever I write going forward will be pretty rooted in LA just because it's the place I know and it's a place that I really adore and that gets kind of short shrift in fiction. I mean, even though there's a very rich LA fiction, his, fiction tradition, I'm not saying there isn't, but um, you know, I, I lived in New York for a summer, and I loved New York too, and I thought, oh, maybe I'll write a New York novel someday, and at some point I was like, yeah, right, why would I do that? Like, everyone's writing a New York novel. Uh, like, it's the same impulse that had me thinking, oh, I'll write, like, a male protagonist someday. It's like, no, everyone else is doing that, so I'll just write what I know um, and care about. So, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty enamored of the city. I don't think I'll leave it.
Yeah, for LA Riders. <laughs> <laughs> really, really, really. Any questions? Steph, I know you're an avid reader, but can you talk about your journey as a writer and how you came into writing this novel and then um, maybe what you have planned next? Yeah, hold on one second. <laughs> oh, are we done here? All right. Thank you. Um, my journey into running. Um, so I always liked reading, and I think um, the biggest piece of being a writer is to be a big reader. I think uh, you can't have one without the other, unless you're going to be a really terrible writer. I mean, I guess that exists. Um, like, I guess, yeah. But, um, yeah, I always read a lot, and then when I went to law school, I kept reading a lot. Um, and then I realized that I didn't, I didn't love law in the way that I hoped I would going in. I went straight after college, and um, I really did think I would like it, and I do like parts of it. Like, I like reading case law. I like some of the more analytical aspects of it, but I mean, and I went to school with like a lot of smart people who love the law and who are like infinitely smarter than I am in terms of embracing complicated aspects of the legal world and I just it didn't speak to me um, and then I worked in this terrible terrible law firm that I hated so I just decided I would start writing and see what happened and then what happened was I had enough of a book that I decided I would just keep going with it and then I don't know I mean I still do legal stuff that's how I that's my bread and butter doc review um, it's really boring and it's not going anywhere, but um, <laughs> but I mean, I'm still attached to it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think once, and I've noticed this too um, with like the online writer world. Like I've met a bunch of people who write um, through Twitter and all those different avenues. And um, the common thread is like people who read a lot. And also when you come to these readings, I come to these readings often actually because I live right up the street, you run into a lot of people who write. Um, because at some point when you really care about the written word, I mean you get kind of greedy because writing is one of those things that really anyone can do. So if you see enough of it, like that spark kind of goes off and you think, well maybe. Um, so I think that is what happened to me. Oh, um, what area of law? Um, nothing. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, you don't have to specialize the way you have to in undergrad when you're in law school. So um, in an alternate life where I like tried really hard and studied really hard and um, got to do whatever I wanted in the legal world. I think like public defense would have been really interesting and I know people who do that now and I think it's it, or like adjacent fields and it is actually something that's fascinating to me. Um, but I never got there. Um, my studies were just kind of all over the place. Uh, Evan. Does, uh, does your knowledge of the law or your interest in the law at all that affect your decision to write? Crime fiction, or does it bear on writing crime fiction, or are they just completely separate? They're pretty separate. Um, and I think the reason for that is that I never had the meaty legal career that a lot of people have um, in law before turning to fiction. Actually, I've met a lot of 
um, lawyers turned fiction writers, and that's a huge, like, like it's a club, and it's not, uh, and it's not something I've seen defined like that. But there are tons of writers who make that switch, and I think it's because, I mean, like I was an English major who went straight through to law school, and uh, if I just followed that path, I would have ended up working at a law firm. And it's like a pretty natural progression um, because uh, and it, it's just, uh, if, if I didn't look elsewhere, I think that's just where I would have ended up. Um, and I think that happens to a lot of people and then they go back to later in life. So I, I've met this um, woman named Allison Leota who writes crime fiction. Um, and she was like a DC prosecutor for like many years. She had this whole career and then like decided that she saw enough great stories doing what she did that she could then turn those into writing. I don't have anything like that. Um, if I wrote a novel about Doc Review, it would be just trash. Um, it would be so boring. Uh, I mean, I know like a few of you guys are lawyers and you've done Doc Review. Like there is no material there. Um, <laughs> So I just, I don't think, like I think uh, something that might be interesting that would require a lot of research of me is like maybe writing about capital punishment. But again, that's something that if I decide to do that in the future would require a lot of research. It's not something that I have ready to go. Um, there are a lot of interesting rich topics in law, but I don't think I ever developed the requisite expertise to write about them intelligently in fiction. Naomi. Yeah. Um, so my character is Juniper Song, and, the, and um, she's a 26-year-old Korean American who comes from a kind of dysfunctional, separated family, um, and she's somebody who graduated from Yale undergrad and. Didn't, and now like tutors um, part-time just to pay the bills and is just otherwise kind of a drifter. Um, which there's some autobiographical elements in there in that if I weren't writing I'd be a total drifter. Um, but yeah, actually when I wrote her I was 22. Uh, when I conceived her, anyway. I was 22, and I was like, this is this really mature woman who's like navigating the streets of Los Angeles. And now I'm 27, and I'm like, I guess it, go I guess it works. <laughs> um, but I wanted to write um, a Korean-American character who wasn't talking about being Korean-American on every page, um, but who was also not interchangeable with a white character. So like, if you switched her out for somebody who wasn't Korean, it wouldn't quite make sense. Um, there's like an immigrant story there, and um, she's embroiled enough in K-Town and um, that world that it just wouldn't make sense to swap her out. And I wanted to write that because that's been kind of my experience. It, um, you know, I'm second generation. I speak barely enough Korean to get by. Um, my parents are first generations but speak English um, and have no resemblance to the family in the novel, I have to say. Just to make sure. <laughs> My family is great and would make a really boring novel, um, just to clarify. Um, but uh, I did want to write 
a Korean American character without writing an identity novel because I felt like it, and I'm, and that's not to say that I don't enjoy identity novels because I do and I think they're important and I might write one in the future. Um, but I wanted the freedom to be able to say like, no, I don't have to, just because I'm Korean, I don't have to do this. Um, but, uh, oh, and the other thing is she's a woman and um, has unfeminine characteristics. Um, while not, while again, not being interchangeable with the man. Um, I mean, there's a part where she gets knocked out, which is before that part I read, where she has to address in her head, like, whether she's been sexually assaulted, which is not something that Marlo ever had to think about. And I, I, I wanted to incorporate that aspect, too, without it being like, oh my god, like, whatever people expect of women in mystery, right? So... Yeah, that was important to me. Um, yeah. Oh, and then as far as future stuff goes, uh, I have like a hundred and some pages of a sequel that we're shopping like now, and my editor has it, so hopefully something happens with that. We'll see. If not, um, I'll keep working on it, but I have other projects in mind, so hopefully we'll see more of her in print. Um, but that's, it's like kind of out of my hands now. One more question. Mm -hmm. Do you consider a noir to be uh, genre writing? And if so, do the parameters of genre writing um, feel restricted to you? Or do you enjoy the sort of puzzle-like aspect of making them new and fresh, both to you and your audience? Um, so noir is by definition genre writing and um, if uh, I mean I haven't checked where it's shelved here but I, th I imagine it would be shelved under mystery like Chandler is under mystery um, a lot of good detective novelists that I read are shelved under mystery um, and I think uh, I think genre is kind of interesting it's a different like um, there's a different approach to genre writing and reading um, I think it's certainly less prestigious um, and uh, it does have these um, set rules and that can be kind of hokey and sometimes and, and it's true that like a lot of genre genre writing doesn't require good writing um, on the other hand I respect genre writers and I mean I obviously am one I, I respect genre writers I think there's a lot of interesting stuff you can explore um, especially I mean noir is great because I think it's such a good tool um, for exploring different uh, what's the word stratums of society because you can because there's there are a few um, kind of protagonists or characters who have the same level of mobility as the private detective um, you can go anywhere you could talk to eight people in a day and that's totally normal and that's part of the job and um, part of the story and it's almost a requirement so you can I mean some really good noir I've read has revealed worlds um, and I think the best noir really does that um, actually Naomi who's here Naomi Hirahara um, she, she writes about um, she writes a protagonist who is uh, an a bomb survivor from Hiro um, in Hiroshima who grew up in the States. And it's really interesting to read about that character because you find out, yeah, he's solving this mystery, which is very entertaining, but you also get to see like what he's experienced in his life. And I think, um, you know, the best one kind of does that. It, it's revelatory. Um, 
And I think like noir traditionally has sprung, I think the, the genre kind of sprang out of this um, post-World War II melancholy um, where, you know, in Chandler writes about the corrupt streets of LA and that's kind of where his novels sprung up from in that like you, you have, you kind of just see corruption and darkness and meanness everywhere. And, um, you know, in, in, in my book, I wanted, I wanted to talk about, like, Asian fetishism. And I thought, like, there aren't too many, there aren't too many ways to explore that topic that are better and more handy than noir. Um, and then as, um, hold on, you also said, do the working within the parameters of genre? Yes, that's right. Or is it a struggle to make it fresh to you? So, um, I will admit that, like, uh, when I started out writing this novel, um, I thought that if I was going to write a novel, it would be easier to write a mystery. I did think that. Um, I remember in particular, um, there was a lecture in my detective fishing class where my professor talked about how Detective stories are kind of conservative in structure because there are a set number of things that have to happen and in a certain sequence. And um, so I thought, well, I can handle that. Like I can have, like I have a beginning and an end in mind and I can kind of create a linear story in which these things happen. Um, and I do think that if approached the right way, mystery is easier to write than straight literary fiction. I've tried, I, I'm working, I'm also working on a novel that's just straight literary and it is much more difficult because of that lack of the constraints. Actually, um, there's been talk about how um, Twitter is giving rise to like a whole new generation and different class of kind of poets and um, wordsmiths who are able to use that 140 character constraint in these interesting ways. I think when you add constraints, like you get some interesting stuff. Like I think some of my favorite projects in like high school and middle school involved like reworking fairy tales or like um, God, I did one project where we were supposed to write something in kind of the voice of in in that kind of stream of consciousness voice of Ulysses and I, th I thought those projects were really fun to do and kind of easier than if I had if I were just given a blank page and said like okay fill this um, and I think in that way the rest the constraints of the genre are comforting um, I think to make things good you have to go behind beyond that obviously but it is a nice place to start if you guys were all thinking of writing novels I would recommend writing a mystery <laughs> Do you know why that particular time in history might have been the golden year of Milan? Do you know why after the war, I mean, I can see women being objectified in the genre. It's there's a social thing. But have you ever thought of why historically that's what you want to approach? Okay, I think, um, yeah, so she asked if um, I had any ideas as to why that was kind of the golden age of noir, like post-World War II. Um, and I mean, I do think that's kind of it. I mean, I, I should say I probably haven't thought of it too deeply because I'm not going to answer this in an intelligent way that goes beyond the question. Um, but I think that era of melancholy and kind of hopelessness and helplessness where you have the new you have new possibilities of atom bombs and you know whole countries decimating each other i mean i think that adds this kind of darkness to whatever your assumptions are and 
I think that kind of creates good literature, um, and not probably not just noir, but uh, noir certainly saw a resurgence, or not a resurgence, but a very productive period after that. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you all very much. Thank you guys so much. <laughs>